This morning we are returning back to a study that we began two and a half years ago, for those of you that are keeping score. We began our study of the Gospel of Mark in September of 2008. We continued that study through May 2009. And then we took a break for quite some time. I was on a nine-month sabbatical from June 2009 to February 2010. By the way, as of a couple of weeks ago, I've been officially back now for a full year from my sabbatical. Hard to believe. Where did that year go? Then in February of 2010, we re-entered our study of the Gospel of Mark with a series that we entitled Radical Shift. Let me very quickly remind you, Radical Radical speaks of the roots and returning to the roots. When we think of radical, we think oftentimes of something sort of out there. When it's really down here, it means it's going right down to foundations. And shift has to do with with a dislodging and a repositioning and and the Lord's desire to do a radical shift in our lives. He's not interested simply in rearranging the furniture of your life. That's sort of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. He's interested in radically changing you from the inside out. He is interested in your transformation. That's his heart. That's his purpose. That's his desire. So we did that study on radical shift back to the core of the gospel. And then we did a study this past fall in restoring right priorities. Looking at Mark 11 chapter, uh, Mark chapter 11 to chapter 13 in a series that we entitled Kingdom Shift. And so the shift we were making was a shift to a kingdom mindset and a transformation in even our mindsets and our ways of thinking. And now this morning... We begin a new study that is going to take us through the season of Lent leading up into Easter until right after Easter. They were entitling Passion, The Way of the King. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you right now to turn in it to Mark chapter 14. And if you don't have your Bible with you, please... Make use of the text that's in, uh, the, the Bible that's right there in front of you and turn to page 719. And while you're finding that, I just want to meander for a moment here and just first of all say thank you to those of you that prayed for us last weekend. Last weekend we were up in Kettle River, Minnesota, which is uh, right on the edge of nowhere. Um, a town of 174 people a couple of hours from here, which uh, many of you know was the very first place that I pastored beginning back in 1984. And um, I was 12 when I went there. And um, 
I uh, had the privilege of serving as the senior pastor there in Kettle River for five and a half years, um, and we had a wonderful season and time of ministry there. It was such an incredible blessing uh, that we had to, to start ministry there. It was, it was quite a, we were, you know, of course, when you go back and you start reminiscing and you remember, and I mean, Annette and I, uh, by the way, just a little more background, Annette and I have known each other since we were five years old. Okay, so we've known each other all our life. We grew up about a mile from each other, and we grew up in South uh, Chicago area, down where, if you've ever driven through Chicago, where 294 and 94 and 80 and all that comes together, we grew up a mile from there. You could hear the you could hear the expressways from where we grew up. So if you've ever driven that scenic part of America, that's um, that's where Annette and I grew up. So we went from there to here where I went to seminary, um, starting, we got married in 1983, started seminary up at Bethel Seminary up here in Arden Hills, attended this church, um, and then migrated from here up to Kettle River. Now, just think for a moment about some cultural adjustments there. Uh, going from Chicago to, uh, we were four miles outside of the nearest town of 174 people. So, um, that was wonderful. And... Um, we learned lots of great stuff. I was sharing last week uh, about one of the things we learned. We learned that you don't hang laundry out on the day your neighbor is spraying his liquid manure on his fields. Okay? This is not a good idea. All right? So we had a lot of learning that we did uh, through our time up in Kettle River. And it was just really good to be back with them. And um, the assignment the Lord had given me last week was to remind them who they are. And uh, the Lord spoke very powerfully and um, had a wonderful time all afternoon. We spent several hours with their leadership team and, and uh, probably will be heading back there again uh, over the next months just to meet with leaders and things like that. And, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned in our um, annual meeting, and I just want to mention here as well, this is sort of part of the season that the Lord has this house in and has me in. Um, Part of my calling, um, in addition to pastoring Bethel Christian Fellowship, which I love. And uh, in a month, I'll be celebrating 21 years as pastor of Bethel Christian Fellowship. In fact, this morning, I was Liz keeps and, and Maura before her had kept, helped me keep a sermon log of all the sermons I've preached. And I, and I, I don't know, I was just decided I'd count how many. So today is my um, 775th. Sunday morning sermon at Bethel, okay? So that's, you know, that's a few. <laughs> that means uh, if you had been here at, at preaching every day for over two years, okay? You know, if you'd been here continuously. Um, and I have them all. So if you'd like to listen to them, you're welcome to. So, um, where was I? Uh, I lost track of where, oh yeah. So part of this season of time, though, is the Lord releasing me and the, and the leadership here has blessed me and then the congregation and your support. We're going together to other churches. So over the next several months, I'll be in Breckenridge, Minnesota and Rockford, Illinois and Esterville, Iowa, and I'll be uh, at a, another church here in St. Paul. And so relatively kind of once a month, I'll be kind of out ministering to congregations and leadership teams and I just want you to know that um, I go under the covering of this house and your prayers 
make that effective and fruitful. And, uh, and I want you to know that I am so grateful for those that he has placed here who, in my absence, just continue to flow in ministry. James, thank you. I, I, I've heard, like, lists of people saying that was exactly, I mean, it was right. So thank you. And for all of those who minister when I'm absent, um, I am so grateful for that. All right. That's my meandering. Now we're going to get to the Word. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be back into the Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospels. And reading them again through the saturated experience just kind of brought them alive and afresh in my spirit again. Because you know, when we come to the, to the Gospels, I want you to understand something. I want you to hear this again this morning. When we are studying the Gospels, we are not simply studying dusty, old, historical texts which have no relevance to where we are in our life today. When we are studying the Gospels and the Scriptures in general, but specifically the Gospels, the Gospel is good news. It's a great story, but even more than that, it is a message that carries in it the very presence and power of the living God. So I don't know about you, but it says, it says in the Word that the Lord lives in a high and lofty place, but also with those who are humble of heart and who tremble at His Word. And I want to tell you this morning that my heart trembles. When I come into the Gospels, there's something that happens in my heart that literally trembles. I feel like there's just a shaking going on deep in my spirit and in my soul. The Lord has a message and a word for us this morning. Just a quick orientation for you. The Gospel of Mark is the the second book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels are the first books in the New Testament. But Mark is, is reliably understood as the first of the Gospels that was written. And so... It's, it's very close to the, the beginning points. In fact, the Gospel writer, Mark, is known as John Mark. And if you have, you've got your, your finger already in Mark 14, turn over just the page to, to verse 51 and 52. We're going to get there a little bit in a few weeks in our study, but notice Mark 14, 51 and 52. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized Him, He fled naked, leaving His garments behind. That is Mark. That's John Mark. He's known as John Mark and also as Mark. He was just a young man. He was a teenager during the time of Jesus. But he was present during a lot of what was happening. He was also, in addition to being kind of a follower, a young follower of Christ, he was a cousin to Barnabas who is one of the great leaders of the church. He was also a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. And he is was a co-laborer and a collaborator with the Apostle Peter. So he has three mentors in his life. I don't know about you, but if I had Barnabas, Paul, and Peter as mentors in your life, that'd be all right. Would that be all right with you? we'd, We'd all be good with that.
Now, Mark's vision, each of the Gospels sort of shows a different facet of Jesus. Matthew, who is writing to a Jewish audience, his kind of, if you put a theme on Matthew, you'd say, behold your king. And the picture you'd have is of Jesus as the lion. Out of Revelation 4, 6 and 7, that talks about the, the four around the throne, you know, these, these pictures. Luke, who is writing to a Greek audience, his, if you put a, a, a title over his gospel, you'd say, Behold your Savior. And the picture would be that of the ox, the sacrifice. John, who's writing to a universal audience, if you put a, a banner over the Gospel of John, it would be, Behold your God. And the picture would be that of the eagle. But Mark, writing to a Roman audience, if you put a banner over the Gospel of Mark, it would be, Behold your servant. And the picture would be that of a man. The key verse in the Gospel of Mark, turn back a couple of pages, the key verse in the Gospel of Mark, is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now let's come to Mark 14. Mark 14. The title of our message this morning is Passion for the King. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill Him but not during the feast, they said, or the people might riot. Mark 14, verse 1 and 2. Now, our context here, let's, let's, let's just pause for just one more moment before we delve into the heart of the text that we're going to be looking at today. Is the Passover feast. And if you went back, and I'm not going to take time to do that this morning, but I would encourage you to do so in your study, go back to Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 12 um, and, and then running through 27. And in fact, the whole chapter of Exodus 12 will give you the picture of what the Passover feast was about. The context was the people of Israel being liberated out of Egypt. And remember, there had been a series of plagues and Pharaoh had hardened his heart and said, I will not let the people go. And the stakes kept getting higher and higher and higher. And finally... The Lord spoke to Moses and said, here's what's going to happen. I am going to go throughout the land and the angel of death is going to come and the firstborn son in every household is going to die. However, if you make sacrifice and put the blood of the sacrifice over the doorposts of your house, the angel of death will pass over. So I want you to understand the context. The Passover is one of the three great feasts that the Israelites celebrated. There was the Feast of Passover, there's the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Those were the three feasts. And at those three feasts, the people of Israel were invited from wherever they were in the world to come back to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem swelled hugely with pilgrims coming. So there were throngs and throngs. We don't know, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the High Holy Feast, specifically here, the High Feast of Passover. When they, to remember the angel of the Lord passing over the people of Israel and their liberation from their captivity. Now, the Feast of Passover was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we won't go into all of what that, that's all about, but, but really it was about, it was about a new start. It was a chapter change. And what it did, you know, you took out the, the leaven, all of the leaven out of your house as a symbolic picture of, of an emptying, of a removing of every kind of thing that would be impure. And, and for seven days you celebrated a feast and it was with unleavened bread. And then out of that and after that, then a new chapter, a new day, it was a new start, a new season. So we're talking about a very significant shift time that happened literally for the people of Israel at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's no surprise that Jesus comes into the heart and thick of that and begins to transform even the understanding and the depth of what God's purpose and heart is. Okay, so that's the context to our text now. So let's continue on. And it's very interesting what Mark does here. He kind of contrasts. So here we have the chief priest, the teachers of the law, looking for a sly way to arrest him. But they're, they're political beasts. They, they understand politics. They know if we arrest him during the feast, there's going to be some sort of riot. We're going to be in trouble. The Romans are going to come in. We can't do it right now. They, they, they're, they're thinking. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And then suddenly we have this incredible picture that unfolds before our eyes. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. It was the last stage of a pilgrim's journey between Jericho and Jerusalem. Bethany was one of the places we see Jesus frequently um, going to and resting. It was a place where he, he... he um, hung out with his friends, with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It was the place where Lazarus recently had been raised from the dead. I mean, there was, there was a lot of significance around Bethany. And it's very interesting that he's at the home of Simon the leper. We don't know. We don't know much more about Simon the leper other than that's the moniker given to him. Well, obviously, he doesn't have leprosy anymore. Because everybody's there. So... I don't think it would be too much a stretch to even say perhaps this is one of the ones that Jesus healed. They're at his house and it says a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, 
Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone! Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for the burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here's the juxtaposition. The chief priests were, and now one of his very own One of the apostles, one of the twelve, waiting to betray him. And in between of this incredible picture of passion for the king. The Gospel of John identifies this woman as Mary, sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, friend of Jesus. My question for us this morning is very simply this. What can we learn from Mary's example about having passion for the king? What does it mean to have passion for the king? What can we learn from her example? And I want to unpack that, and I'm going to do this in a fairly swift manner this morning. I've got a number of things, but each of them is going to be brief. And there's a question attached to each. And I want you to hear the question, and I want your heart to be engaged this morning And begin to ask yourself, what can I learn? What can we corporately as a congregation learn? And what can I learn individually from Mary's example about having passion for the King? Priority. We've talked about restoring right priority. This whole study of the Gospel of Mark has brought us continuously back to this issue of priority. And I want you to notice that Mary made Jesus a priority in her life. He was not secondary. He was not sort of at the at the um, the, the margins of her life. He was right at the center of who she was and, and what she was thinking about and what she did. John 15 instructs us, says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man or a person, a woman, remains in me and I in him or her, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing! Now, what does that mean? There's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff without Jesus, aren't there? There's a lot of us who are believers who are doing a lot of stuff without Him. So what does it mean, apart from me, you can do nothing? What it means is, you can do nothing that will truly bear lasting fruit. Nothing that will remain. If you remain in Me, 
I will remain in you. And if we remain in Him, then we will bear fruit. And it goes on in that passage to talk about the fruit, the much fruit and the fruit that will remain. But it always comes back to this issue of what occupies the center of our life. I shared with you during the series of messages we did on restoring right priorities. You, I hope, remember this. Those of you that are visiting today won't remember this because you weren't here. So I will remind all of us. Most of the time when we think about priorities, we think about priorities as a list. And if we're in church on Sunday morning and somebody asks, what's your first priority? We're going to say God. Because it's the right thing to say. Well, God's my first priority. And then, depending on, you know, where our circumstances and situation of life, family, church. If you're talking to the pastor, you'll probably say, church. Church is the next priority. Um, uh, Work, whatever, friends, all of those things. But what I've encouraged us to consider, and I would encourage you to consider again, is looking at your priorities from a different perspective. Rather than looking at them as a list, look at them as a wheel with God in the center. So God is in the center of my family. He is our king, as Pastor Ben. Lord, you are king in my family. He is at the center in our work. Lord, you are king over my work. You're at the center in my schooling. You are king over my schooling. You are center in my recreation. You are king over my recreation. You are king over my finances. You are king over every area of my life because I've placed you at the center and all things then hold together in Him. So my simple question to us this morning, which is not so simple if we really think about it, who or what is at the center of your life? Who or what is at the center of your life? Who is the master? Who makes the decisions in your life? You? Your boss, your checkbook, some other people, God, who's at the center? Or what is at the center? Is there something at the center of your life? There's something at the center of your life. Pursuing happiness, that might be the center of your life. Play. What's at the center? What's at the center of our culture as a church? Is it doing or is it being? Is it being with Him? It's part of why we come together for outpouring services. Let me just encourage you. And and Liz made her, her, her one mistake for the year in the bulletin. It says Thursday. It's Friday. It really is Friday. It's the right date. But it is this Friday, the outpouring. We just did a message, a series of messages on the blessing. We're going to be praying for an impartation of blessing because there are assignments that God has given us to do. But He needs to be at the center of those. And we need Him to fill us so that we can flow. Who or what is at the center of your life? Secondly, what are the characteristics we're learning from Mary about having passion for the king? The second thing, and let me explain this because you might not get it right off the bat, 
it might be a, a bit intuitive or obscure. But I want you to notice how present Mary is with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is there reclining at the table and everybody's around, but I don't know that anybody's really present with Him. They're all preoccupied with their own thoughts, with their own agendas, with their own stuff. They're all at the table with Jesus, but I don't know that any of them are fully actually fully recognizing or acknowledging who He really is. The disciples are there. They're the ones who say, you know, while He's, while he's um, getting anointed by, by Mary, they're the ones, to some of those present, some of the others say, It was the disciples who were present. It wasn't even the religious folks. It was the disciples themselves who were indignant with Mary. Who does she think she is? She knows who she is. She gets it. This woman is the only one who gets it. In fact, for the next few chapters, we're going to see that generally it's the women who get it. It just is. It's true. She's present. There's a famous story in Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha. Do you know it? As Jesus and disciples were on their way, He came to a village, Bethany, where a woman named Martha opened her home to Him and had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what He said But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had been made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Poor Martha. She gets such a bad rap. You know, Martha was doing what she understood that was her responsibility as a host to do. And yes, there needed, there was a time and a place for that to happen. There needed to be a meal prepared. Jesus needed to be fed. But right now, it was time to sit at Jesus' feet with Him. And the word there in the, in the Greek, turbazo, is, is the word. It's like Mary had turbocharged thoughts in her head. You ever sit down and try to pray? And like suddenly, everything that you have forgotten, you remember. Right? It's good to just keep a piece of paper there and write it down and say, okay, now what? It's so hard to stay present. It just is. It's hard to stay present here this morning, isn't it? Hard for me. Your, Your mind, your head starts going, you know, it just is. We're human. Let's just be honest. Okay? But if we're going to have a passion for the king, we're going to have to learn how to be present with him. Individually and corporately. The word has been spoken over this house. We're to host the presence of the Lord. You know, when you've got somebody who comes into your home and stays... You know, you got a guest for a couple hours, that's one thing. 
When you've got somebody come in and live with you, that changes the dynamics of your house. If God's going to come and be hosted and inhabit us, it's probably going to look a little different. Not going to be church as normal and usual like we think of it. This is His house. We're actually guests in His home. <laughs> in one way or another here. So the question I have for you, where's the focus of your attention? We live in probably the most distracted cultural history, time in history of all humanity. We all... I mean, we, have, we are being trained in having the attention span of gnats. Literally. You know? If, there, there, if we don't have this many things going on in front of us all of the time, we don't know what to do. If the screen isn't changing, whether it's TV or computer or whatever it is, if it's not changing constantly... It's actually rewiring our brains. It is. (laughs) There's change happening. Even in the wiring, physiologically. The question is, what's the focus of your... What's captivating your attention? Whatever it is that's captivating your attention, that's what you are going to be present with. And if all you're present with is that, how is that connected to, how is that helping you in your passion for the king? Are you present to him, at least periodically? <laughs> Are you present with his word? That's what's wonderful about this saturate. It's so good. And it's hard. People, it's hard. It's hard for me. Okay? I'm with you. I'm just like you. Sometimes I get bored. I'm like, oh man, I've read this so many times. Sometimes I get distracted. Sometimes I just get too busy. I mean, you know, just this past week I had a couple of times where it's like, oh boy, I got out of the rhythm. Okay? I did. And suddenly I'm eight chapters behind and I'm going, Ugh! And Noah comes in and says, well, I'm up to Second Corinthians chapter 8 now. My ten-year-old, you know. I'm like, okay. (laughs) When the competitive streak kicks in, I'm not going to let my 10-year-old beat me here. But it's, come on, it's hard. It's not, you know, this is a discipline. It takes time. It's hard to pay attention. It's hard to be present. It's the discipline of attentiveness. Come on, it's hard. If you've fallen behind... You have official dispensation and grace. It's okay. I bless you. I release you from guilt and shame about that. I invite you now to join us as we begin again now here in Galatians. Okay, just start where we are. Just pick up. Don't, don't give up. Some of you want to give up right now. I understand. I've been there. I know Pastor Sam did this in Minneapolis before we started this, he said, how many of you have started a reading through the year in a, the Bible in a year program in your life? And almost everybody's hands went up. And how many of you actually finished it? <laughs> okay? 
It's hard. It's okay. Just start where you are and keep reading where you are. Just keep engaging. We're going to have the summer to do some catch-up, and you'll have some opportunity to come back and backfill. But I'm telling you, it will help you in this discipline of being present with Him. So I want to urge you, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't not show up at a group because I didn't finish all my reading this week. It's okay. Read two verses, get them really good, and ask a good question out of them, and no one will know, okay? All right? So, there you go. It's kind of like the Cliff Note version, all right? All right? Because when you're there with other people who have been reading it, you're going to overhear things that are going to stimulate and encourage you. Okay? Okay. All right? Prepared. Listen up, people. Mary didn't walk in with empty hands. She came prepared. She had brought her best. This was worth a year's wages. This was a somewhere between a thirty and fifty thousand dollar gift. This was not a small thing that she was bringing. She walked into that house prepared to give it. Second Corinthians, we were just reading this this week. Just read this yesterday or day before. Second Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a a cheerful giver. God loves a giver who comes prepared to give. Each one who has prepared in his heart, he's decided in his heart what he's going to give. There's an intentionality about that. Now that includes our finances. Somebody just in the past couple weeks, let me just give this to you as an illustration to spur you on, who desires to remain anonymous. Somebody who... who, um, Needed a new car, decided to purchase a new car, and decided to purchase less new car than they could have afforded to buy, and chose to give the difference of that to a fund to help buy another van for Bethel. So they gave $3,000 into that fund because we need more vans for our Bhutanese friends, for our youth, growing youth group, for those that... That was somebody who was intentionally prepared to come and give a gift. That was somebody who was thinking in advance. But it's not just your finances. It's your time, it's your talents, and it's your treasures. And the question that I have for you this morning, and I believe that the question that the Lord is asking us is, what is in your hand to give? What is in your hand to give? What does the Lord want to release through you into the feet of Jesus. You're not, you know, please, this is where it becomes relevant and you have to make the application contemporary, however you say that. Alright? Because you're not going to bring a thing of perfume. Alright? One of the things I love, I mean, 
one of the greatest books is the best Christmas pageant ever. Okay, I read it every year and I read it to the kids at my kids' school. We love it. And the Herdmans, you know, and the Three Wise Men. And I love when they come in, if you've seen the story, you know, instead of the, the, the expensive bath oils, they come in with a ham. And they plop the ham down. Okay? Because it's what they know, to, it's what they have to get. It's the only thing that they got to give. It's what's in their hand. What's in your hand? Notice Mary's posture. I love her posture. She gets down and she... (laughs) What's our posture? We're so full of ourselves. We can be so full of pride. We can be so full of our own whatever and we can... You know, stand up tall and we can, you know, whatever. We're, 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 we're so full of posturing in ourselves. But Jesus gave us an example. John chapter 13. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. What did Jesus do? He washed his disciples' feet. Knowing who he was, John 13 says, he took off his outer robe and he put a towel around his waist and he took a basin of water and he began to wash his disciples' feet. What did Mary do? She walked in that same posture, pouring out the oil on Jesus' head and in some of the other passages also upon his feet. She anointed him king and she also blessed him and served him and washed his dusty feet. And my question to you is, what is the posture of your heart today? What is the posture of my heart? I go through the same stuff you do. I have to wrestle through the same things you have to wrestle through. I'd be here this morning thinking, you know, I really better impress some folks. You know, we got some new visitors here. It'd be really important. Boy, I really want them to. God forgive me. It's not about me. It's about Him. It's about serving Him. Jesus, I want you to see Jesus today. Look through me to Him. Look through the worship team to Him. Why, by the way, I just love our kids. I just love them doing their thing. Okay? Sometimes they're a little bit rammy. You know? And the swords come out. and You know? But they're unpretentious. They're not trying to impress anybody. But there's something, you know... Do you get this? Are you, are you hearing... Right? There's a posture. There's a purity. There's a purity. It was pure nard. It was undiluted. It was unmixed. It was pure. Earlier today, and you know, nobody prompted Anne to read Psalm 24. I don't think. Did anybody prompt you to read that right before we sang that? Did you know we were going to sing that song? No. Okay. So that might have been God. Okay. So. Um, she read Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the King of glory may come in. Do you know what's right before that? Right before that is this scripture. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. What's an idol? Anything that occupies the place God should. Idol can be your job, could be your computer, could be your spouse, could be your home, could be your car, could be your own thoughts, your own imaginations, your own strengths, your own gifts, could be a lot of things. God wants clean hands and a pure heart. And Psalm 86 gets us even more. See, purity, sometimes we think of purity as simply out external stuff, but we're really talking about heart things. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. That's pure. Purity has to do with undividedness. That's what purity literally means, something that's not divided. That I may fear your name, I will praise you, O Lord. My God, with all my heart, I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love towards me, for you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. There's an undivided heart that the Lord wants to bring. So my question for us is this. Is there anything dividing your heart? Because if we're going to follow the example of Jesus and have passion for the King, He wants to give us, and, and it's His gift to us, but we've got to cooperate with Him. But He wants to, and this is our prayer you know, he says, I want, give me, you know, David's asking for that which he knows he doesn't yet have. So it's okay to say, I have a divided heart. Don't be ashamed about that. Bring it out in the open. God's not, you know, he's not up there going, oh my goodness, I didn't realize. I had no idea. Shocking. No. He knows. He wants to give you an undivided heart. Passion. Anybody know what the root word for passion is? Pain and suffering. Sacrifice. It was a sacrifice. There was a, for, for, for Mary to do that, to give that. I mean, that was no small gift. There was a sacrifice that she made. That's the passion. We're talking about the passion of Christ. Him laying down His life. As He has laid down His life for us, He invites us to lay down our life for Him. Romans 12, we know it well. I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. He wants us to be living sacrifices to Him. And you've heard me say it before, and a friend of mine always says this, the problem with living sacrifices is that they always want to crawl back off the altar. Right? But He invites us to stay at the altar and be sacrifices, living sacrifices to Him. And then, not conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does your mind get renewed? Anybody, you know, that's a great concept. How does it get renewed? Right here. That's why we're doing saturate, to renew your mind. You got so much going into your head all the time. So do I. The Word of God is the thing that renews our mind and begins to bring transformation. Okay? 
Almost there. How are you being called to sacrifice today? Two more things. Don't miss these. Try to stay present. Two last P's this morning. Mary's act was prophetic. Notice what Jesus says about what she did. Go back to the text. Mark 14, verse 8. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. What she did was not simply an act. I mean, it was an act of obedience and it was an act of worship, but it was also a prophetic act. It was an act of revelation. She was the one who brought to the... I mean, she, she was the one who came to the table, brought that perfume, and reminded everybody there of that which they had forgotten. That Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed King, was going to die. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? And Simon answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now here's, the, here's, here's catch this. Please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. You're Peter, and you're on this rock. Now, the rock that Jesus is talking about is not Peter physically. The rock that he's talking about is the revelation that Peter has received. So Jesus is saying, on this revelation, on the revelation of who I am, on that rock, the rock that I am the Messiah, I'm going to build my church. And whatever you bind in heaven, and and we get into some, you know, sometimes there's sort of uh, what I call um, sort of charismatic magic stuff, you know, and we're binding and loosening and, but it has to be in the context of the word, which is, has to do with revelation. We're binding deception and we're releasing revelation. Releasing truth. Because that's the rock. So what I want you to ask yourself is this. What revelation have you received about the kingdom of God? Mary had received a revelation. She comes and pours. She knows what's... She has an understanding of what's going to happen in and through and for Jesus. What do you understand? And what is the revelation God has put in your heart related to who He is and about the kingdom? That, if you have passion for the King, you're going to live out through that and that revelation is going to be released through you into the world. And God has a... God has a revelation in your life. He's got a destiny. He's got a purpose. He's got a calling. Living out of that will bring freedom to many others. That's what will bring the releasing. That's the keys. You have the keys of revelation. Okay? Final one. Permeating. Look at what he says. Don't you just love it? I do. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. And some of the others talk about how 
when the perfume was released, the aroma filled the earth. The whole house. When there's passion for the king, there's a release of this perfume of his presence in our lives and around us that permeates and penetrates. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads what? Everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? So here's my question to us. is What's the fragrance of your life? What do you smell like, people? Do you smell like Jesus? Do you smell like kingdom? Do you smell like gospel? Do you smell like grace? Do you smell like Jesus? Do you smell like Jesus? On the rare occasions when my wife is gone, and I'm home and I'm in bed sleeping. You know, if I lean over and I put my head on her pillow, it's got the fragrance of a nap. It's permeating. If I open the door and where her clothes are, you know, it's just that fragrance. What do you smell like? fragrance in your life. So here's my final question as the worship team comes up and as we close here this morning. How does my life and our life together reflect Mary's example of passion for the King? How do our lives reflect this? The priority, the present Preparedness, the posture, the purity, the passion, that prophetic sense, that permeating. I really felt like as we were closing, I just felt like this. I, I, I actually believed, I believe, not believed, I, I received it earlier, but I receive it right now for us. I actually sense that Jesus wants to just stand in front of us and ask us this question. How is my life reflecting Mary's example of passion for the King? I want you to understand when He stands before you, He looks at you with eyes that are absolutely full of love. There is no condemnation in those eyes. So you do not have to kind of look down in shame He just wants you to look into his eyes. Do you just look up into his eyes right now? Just look into his eyes. You can just, you probably got to close your eyes to do it, otherwise, you're looking in the back of somebody's head. Just close your eyes right now. But hold your head up and just look into his eyes.
Jesus, come and speak to us in our hearts, Lord. We're so weary of just hiding. We're so tired of being divided, Lord. Lord, we want you to unite our heart with you. Because you're the life giver. You're the one... No one else has the words of eternal life. No one else has the answers to the questions we're asking. We've tried all kinds of other stuff and it really hasn't worked. And we're just weary and we just want to come and we just want to throw ourselves at your feet today. We want to give ourselves to you and give you what we have and pour it out as an offering before you. Help us, Lord. invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to sing this prayer and then I'm going to give a prayer benediction. But as we sing this prayer, if you want to come to this altar and respond physically and just bow down before Him, kings will surrender their crowns. If you want to just surrender your crown and worship Him this morning, come. Just come right now. It's a level place at the foot of the cross. And again, there's no condemnation in the cross. There's forgiveness. There's hope. There's healing. There's restoration. There's transformation. There's life. 